Today's conversation is with Elise Quintzel. We dig into the art of ghostwriting, what the progress of development is, how she researches for the writing, how she works with the author she disagrees with, and how the story ends up evolving as much as the people do in the process. We have a fun discussion around free speech and what it means in light of advertising models as well as filter bubbles. Lastly, we discuss how her new book covers her early life and can serve as a source of inspiration to people suffering from indecision or who are wary of taking risks. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Elise Prinzel. <laughs> so, so you uh, you are um, kind of do you do a bunch of different things, like all kinds of different things, right? I'm what they call a free range gal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So. One of the things you do is uh, write a lot of books, and uh, not necessarily for yourself, for other people, which I actually think is kind of more interesting. I have a lot of authors on the show. Um, I have no idea which ones use ghostwriters or write their own stuff. Um, Do you have any idea of the prevalence of of ghostwriting? Like what, how many people actually use that kind of service? Every politician who's ever written a book more or less used a ghostwriter. Really? Practically every musician, athlete, celebrity, practically all, except for Patti Smith. I know she wrote her own book. <laughs> Most of them do not write their own books. They have a ghostwriter. Interesting. Why Why ghostwriting and not just editing? Why, why not just... Uh... Two different animals. Hmm. Um, ghostwriting is me, in this case, being your voice your ears, your eyes, and taking your story and then regurgitating it in the manner in which you would like it to be told, but you don't have either the time or the talent or the wits to sit down and write because it is a hell of a job to sit down and write. And if you're writing somebody's biography or memoir, or perhaps you're even fictionalizing their story. That takes hundreds upon hundreds of hours of transcripted interviews to then get to the heart of the matter. Interviews with not only the person you are ghostwriting for, but their circle, their inner circle, their median, and their outer circle. And the critics. The critics? Uh, who cares? You're not going to interview critics. No, I'm, not, I'm asking. Do you uh, do you ever interview the critics as well, just to get a sense for? Oh, the, of the course. Other, the other side it, of the without story. tension, there is no story. Mm-hmm. You need tension. You need a trajectory of up and down and all around to create something that is compelling. It's called an it's called an MGQ, the main dramatic question. If you don't have one, you really don't have a book that's going to be interesting for anyone to read or an audiobook for people to listen to. Interesting. I, uh, I primarily read, I would say 99% is uh, nonfiction. Somebody, it could be their life story, but generally not. Generally, it's about something. Um, and they happen to be an expert in that thing. Um, so these are not necessarily CEOs. These are people who are academics of some kind or have a lived experience that is super rare. Um, you know, it's just something that normal people don't deal with. Navy SEALs, for instance. It's something that 
you know, a couple hundred people have done it. And, you know, maybe, right. maybe a thousand, but not, right. not a million, right? So um, you said that uh, the off-camera, you were talking about a huge chunk of the people you talk to are like CEOs or um, people who run companies of some sort, right? I would say people who run companies, people who run their lives in an extraordinary way. How do I know that? Well, I'm the judge and jury of that. They run their lives somewhat off course. I am known as the rebel writer, so I attract like kind. They are somewhat rebellious, whether it is in the career that they've had, or their approach to life, or their experience in life, which was just out of sight. Can you, can you give me an example? Yes, you, I can. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Okay. One of the more recent clients, he hired me to coach him. He's not a writer. He was an IT consultant. Sounds I, familiar. <laughs> <laughs> hired me to coach him. And then I got deeper and deeper into the book where besides the coaching, I helped edit and basically frame the book. Also gave the title to the book called You've Got to Lose to Win. A young man in the 1980s comes from a super religious household, rebels against the household by doing the opposite, which is to gamble. He then becomes the largest, biggest, best poker player in Central Texas. And that's the story. Well, and now he does software. <laughs> He did do software, and I have to say that because of this experience, and I am proud to say, he is now going to be a full-time novelist. Mm. He's already working on book two. Wow. So what what got you into writing books in the first place? I mean, it seems like that's kind of a... It seems like that's something that either comes from journalism, um, which I know you got a bit of journalism in your background, or it comes from just knocking your head against it, just loving it, and just or hating it, but wanting to get better at it. You know, one of those, one of those two. Which, which do you feel like your path was? Well, I started as a music journalist when I was in high school. I knew that I wanted to write. I also was following music bands, mostly rock, pop, British pop mm -hmm. of the nineteen seventies, and I decided, oh, I'll marry the two. I will be a rock journalist. It took two years, and by the time I was 18, I was published in what was then one of the leading music magazines of its day, Circus. So journalism requires what? Not just a writing ability. It requires an inquiring mind. Well, and a passion of some kind. A passion to uncover the truth, mm -hmm. whatever that truth is. A passion to get to the bottom of a story, a passion to bring people together or tear them apart mm -hmm. in order to understand what is the rationale behind their actions. So that always motivated me. I would look at people and be able to ascertain who was telling the truth to me, who was lying. But, yeah. Okay, <laughs> fast forwarding a bit here. Uh, how do you reconcile knowing 
that they are indeed lying to you, and now you have to build a story around a lie. Or I do you, or you I just re, say, I, no, I thank re, you? <laughs> sometimes I say, no, thank you, if it is in industries or attitudes that I just cannot comply with, that's a choice, right? Let me give another example. So a woman had hired me to ghostwrite her book. It was about her former partner. They never married because he was on the run from the law, from the US law. She, on the other hand, was on the run from herself. I gave the title of the book, The Cult of One. She lied to herself her whole life about her relationship with this man. She put him on a pedestal. What I discovered after interviewing all her friends, her children, and numerous conversations with her was that she was clouding over the relationship. She did not see who he was until the end until it was over. Mm -hmm. So in that case, she was lying to herself, but I wasn't the judge of her lying to herself. I could see that. So as a ghostwriter, hard ghostwriter, it was my job and my duty to uncover that. You sound more like a therapist. <laughs> I am. I'm a therapist, I'm a mother, I'm a writer, I'm a coach. I'm an archaeologist. Yeah. I dig it out. You kind of have to pull it out of them. So out of curiosity in that example, <clears throat> you you regurgitate back what you think is going on here. That's got to be pretty uncomfortable for her to be looking at like, ugh, I've been lying to myself this whole time. But, yeah. And sometimes they don't want to work with me anymore. I know. I was going to say, but then she has to give a rubber stamp on it, right? Correct. So, so is that, uh, are you more interested in the truth in that context and like I'm going to lose some clients and that's how it's going to be or you got like I got to sugarcoat this a little bit kind of like sneak it in or how's it going to work I'm born and bred in the Bronx New York City I don't sugarcoat shit awesome so no I would rather lose a client <laughs> than sugarcoat it uh -huh. that's good yeah I've I've, uh, I've always played my uh, my hand pretty much just like that it, you know, there's pros and cons. Of course, but to anything, isn't there? Yes, there, that's true. But I've ended up with a lot of really genuine people in my life. Like, people who don't care that I tell them the truth, or, or even really value the truth. And, and it's easier to have conversations with them, because we're no, there's no context for, like, one-upmanship. One we're not trying to be better than each other. Or a hidden agenda. Or yeah. there's, there's, no, there's nothing behind it. This is what it is. Let's discuss it. You don't agree with me? I am open to being wrong. Mm -hmm. What's wrong? It's just another opinion. Mm -hmm. Right? So to have a meaningful life, you need to have meaningful conversations first with yourself, and that will enable you to have those same with others. So, but <laughs> this isn't a conversation with themselves. I mean, that is also happening. <clears throat> this is a conversation with the rest of the world, anybody who'd read this book. So this is uh, this is definitely, it's opening your heart to something that you may be very uncomfortable exposing. Um, I mean, you're really, you're really giving them an opportunity to do a sebaku a little bit here, right? <laughs> or self-immolation, I don't know, it's something, it's something bad. I mean, it's cathartic, it's good. They come out the other side feeling, you know, good that they, 
expose that part of their life, but at the same time, <clears throat> are they ready for it? You know, you're you're not necessarily actually the therapist, so <laughs> they haven't done all the hard work. You're just saying, hey, look, you're you're clearly lying to yourself, and uh, here's your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that comes through a, a little. It's, I know it's a little softer, a little softer during the process. And what happens during that process is they might become flabbergasted or enraged and say, "I didn't say that. I don't think that. Where did you get that from?" And then we have a conversation, and they either agree or they disagree, or they tell me to edit it out and. Then comes a tenuous moment. Horse training. Right. Or <laughs> I have to decide, will I continue with the project? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't see what I see, I'm, again, I can't sugarcoat it. It's just not in my nature to do that. Mm -hmm. I may have to walk away. Interesting. And that's in... How often does that happen? I would say probably one out of four. Wow, that high. Yeah. One out of four. People are not ready to expose themselves, even though they think, "Let I have the best story, I want to tell this story. Most people would rather just carry on in a blasé kind of way. They don't want to make waves. That's amazing to me. One out of four. I, I'm just having a hard time reconciling. I mean, if what you're saying is true, you actually dig into their life and you actually talk to all their friends and they're like, wait, that never happened. They never they never beat that guy up. He got beat up by that guy or whatever. And there's, this whole thing is a house of cards. Right. You know what I mean? Or their friends would say, no, she's she's doesn't remember it the right way. Right. On the other hand, let's take families. I come from a very small family. Only had one brother. His life... His memories and his recollections of events are completely different than mine. And that's what makes a great story. So if the person who has hired me is willing to allow the rest of the story, the 360, the rest of the story come out from other people, then I probably won't say, hey, I've had enough of you, bye. I will continue with it. Interesting. So you are the one pulling the plug, typically, not them. Typically, yes. Interesting. So you better write it your way or the highway, right? Well, <laughs> or go look, do it some look, with somebody I else. Have to, <laughs> what does a ghostwriter do? You write the story as the person wants it told. But if the person is not totally aware of what they want to say, then you are helping them in the process. Yeah, that, right? that, they have, of course, yes. I mean, I'd say that's the bare minimum, right? That's like, get my thoughts onto paper, you know, and, and make it sound like not completely stupid. <laughs> that's the bare minimum. But making it into a good story as opposed to it just being raw thoughts, I mean, that, that seems, that's the art. That's the art, exactly. Right. Exactly. So what is the typical process when you get a client? Like, what? how exactly do you go about getting out of them this large body of knowledge? Is it just tape recorder and just sit in a room and ask questions or asking for an outline or how do you, what's the sort of the process you go through? So the process is more or less like I work in public relations as well. So it's the same as if I'm sitting with a client, it's an intake process. 
So the first week or so, we have interviews over two to four hours per day over a seven-day period. And I like to do a walk in the woods. So we will go somewhere, quiet place, maybe a beachside resort, spend that time together. And I record it. Prior to recording that, though, I send them questions. Mm. So you're already kind of preceded with things. You if, have to. Do you do some research as well on that? Or? If they're a public figure, but of course you could do your, your Google searches and their social media and their corporate background, of course. Mm -hmm. What if it's uh, more about a thing as opposed to them? Like, uh, I'm writing a book on AI right now, so if it, would you have done a bunch of research on AI going into it so you yes. ask smart questions? And or? I would have done research using AI mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. In fact, I have, I have a colleague who just wrote one of the first books on AI, mm -hmm. and the whole book is written using AI. That's going to be a rough book to read. <laughs> if, you've, if you've seen what it produces, oof, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But in any case, so even if it's a thing, yes, you, you research it. Right. So then I have the interviews. Then I go back and I transcribe. And that's also a process. A month, a two months, depends. Through the transcription, then I'm going to do the thinking work. This is the fun part. This is where I get to determine what the themes are, what the plot is, what the big question is, and can it be answered, who the characters are, and what are their attributes. So I map that out. I simplify it. I use Google Docs, you know, spreadsheet, and I send it to my client, and then they will sign off on it, yes, no, and then we have a dialogue written and spoken over Zoom, in person, and that takes a while. And after because, because you need like follow-up questions, is that why? Well, not just follow-up questions. I'm making an assumption based on that those seven days. That here's what the story is. So they might just go, no, 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 no. That's to... that's an aspect of the story. That's not the main question. Right. You you only got part of it. You missed this whole thing. Right. 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 And if that is the case... Or they forgot to tell you stuff. Right. Yeah. And if that's the case where I missed a part, which is the main story, mm -hmm. then I go back and interview them. Mm -hmm. And we have a discussion. How, long, how often does that happen? Where you just sort of... They go off on such a tangent, you kind of miss the main thread. Is that a common thing? It is common. Mm -hmm. But I can't really give you an answer. How often does that happen? No, I just... I, I don't know, really. I, I guess the reason I'm asking is, uh, it seems like... Humans have a story in their head, but it doesn't really make sense to anyone else. And so they want to tell it to you. They mean to tell you their story, but they get so lost in the minutia over here and the kind of branching logic of how this whole thing happened. It's like, okay, well, I kind of have to do this chronologically, and then they kind of miss the major points. And I just, I'm just curious from a narrative perspective, how close are they to the final product when they're trying to tell it to you? Well, okay, there's... Different types of people, though. So that example is somebody who is microscopic in their view of the world. But there are other people that look through life with a telescope. And so they only paint a big picture. And they're not into the details. 
But right? you have to add details. You have to. Otherwise, of it's course. a very short book. <laughs> well, otherwise, it's no book. It's just copy for an advertisement. <laughs> Is it really that sometimes? They'll sometimes. Just, they'll just come at you with a, with a book title and you go fill in the rest. Well, they don't. No one I've met so far has come up with a book title. Okay. It's always been me. Interesting. Um, but yeah, they may come up. I have a story. It's about my, my family. It's multi-generational. It's a saga. It takes place in China, like Amy Tan, the Joy Love Club. And I want to talk about all the incidents and my parents, my grandparents, the cousins, the uncles, and how it all influenced influence me. I'm like, okay. And now I start asking questions. Yeah, that's a, that's a billion questions to answer that one. Right? And from that, I can extract and then thread the needle through a story. Oh, this story really is about racism in America. Or this story is about your bisexuality, which wasn't um, accepted in your country of origin. Or this stuff, et cetera, et cetera. There are then major themes that you extract. So... Knowing those major themes, how do you know? Is this one of those things where you, if you see it, you know it's beautiful, but you can't describe what beauty is, or you see this gem of an idea, you're like, I couldn't tell you why, but I know everyone's going to love this. How, how, do you, how do you find those? Okay, good question. I liken myself to an archaeologist. I said that at the beginning of the show, because I dig out the gems that are hidden within my clients. I have a talent for doing that. So when I see something that has a potential to be a fabulous story, I can explain it to them very logically. Oh, here's why it will be a great story. And I can associate that with current events, uh, the national or the international mood a certain generation, if it's aimed towards Gen Z. How do you, how do you know that? Is, that? is that just it's instinctual? It, or? Yeah, it's instinctual, but it's also because I do a lot of reading. Um, do you know Faith Popcorn? No. She used to be, in the 90s, this cultural maven. She was somebody that had her finger on the pulse of everything that was happening culturally. And I used to be way wider in my informational gathering, if you want to call it that. Sure. I don't know what I want to call it. <laughs> That's why I'm struggling for words. And now it's a certain range that I am interested in. And in that range, like through that lens and perspective, then I could give feedback. So I've become more narrow-focused in my life. And on the other hand, by becoming more narrow, I've opened and widened my heart and ability to relate to people that probably in my younger years, I just would have said, like, get the hell out of here. I'm not interested. I guess... My, my version of that same sort of thing is uh, something I tell the younger generation pretty frequently is uh, you got to know your memes. 
and uh, <clears throat> and I think they uh, they think I think that they think I'm joking when I say it. I am not joking. Okay. Um, I'm absolutely dead serious because if you know memes, and this is the Dawkins uh, version memetic uh, sort of memes, but also I mean truly the, the funny things you see with the, like the if or whatever, right? Both I mean both things. Because if you know both things, you effectively know what's going on culturally. This is the this is the mood of whomever created this thing at this time. And if you know enough about your memes, if you know them, as opposed to just watch occasionally ones going by, but you actually know kind of the history of how that thing came to be and the different versions of it, and you know, you'll see sort of artifacts from other places kind of inter interchanged or interplaced or whatever. You know a lot about the lineage of how this person came about this meme, mm -hmm. just in a single graphic. And so, um, specifically uh, in the computer security world, when I when I'm looking at a meme, it's posted by a terrorist or something like that, I can tell exactly where their thinking was, where it came from. I can I can tell what forums they were in. I can tell where it came, you know the whole lineage of this whole thing um, just by one image. And so I'm. It's very, very useful for kind of understanding where people's thinking is generally. Um, so I got to imagine it's similar to what you're talking about. I like that analogy. Mm -hmm. It is similar. Mm -hmm. And if you're if you're good at it, like really, really good at it, <clears throat> what you can do is you can say, "I bet this person spent a lot of time in this forum," mm -hmm. and you can get there, and sure enough, they were spending a ton of time right there. And it's, it requires a lot of work, and you really do have to spend a lot of time kind of, <clears throat> to your point, kind of archaeology, like where did this thing come from, and where did that come from, and, and memes as we know them in the, the GIF sort of sense, where the uh, same mm -hmm. image have been around for quite a while, um, and in some sense have been around thousands of years in the forms of like comics and stuff, but but more generally and practically in the way I mean it, um, the last 20, 30 years, um, and, um, but you but yet you can still find them. You still know where they came from. And, and some of the old places where memes used to be placed, uh, there was a place called You're the Man Now Dog is long gone. So any references to You're the Man Now Dog had to have been somebody who really had thought about this thing that happened to them 20 years ago or whatever when that meme site was around. And so you can you can kind of backtrack, like, oh, this person's probably this age group, you know, they, and this is the meme that they were thinking about at the time, and here's how they replaced it or whatever. Well, in fact, aren't we just speaking mm -hmm. about culture mm -hmm. and the history of culture? Yeah. Because just, the same thing is true in music. Absolutely. You know, every musician that, uh, whether it was rap and hip-hop, that picked up a line from a jazz tune or a rock song or a beat... It came from somewhere. Nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> Just the rearrangement. Well, I, I, mean, I think that's true. I mean, if you think about anything from a like an engineering perspective at all, standing on the shoulders of giants who've done other amazing things that got you to where you are. Or it's standing on the shoulders of scientific fact, uh -huh. and as we know it today. And, and language is one of those things where I think uh, the etymology of words is actually pretty interesting. Like words mean different things that meant different things at different times in history, and so if you if you reread things like the word good, like the word good seems like a word we all understand, but it, it kind of had a different implication when it was first being used. It was like more like like uh, like goodness, like uh, things 
have intrinsic good to them. You know, it's not like, oh, that, that was a good show. It's like, yes, but like, what you mean is <laughs> this much more robust thing. You know, and saying? that's the beauty of language. Mm -hmm. So we're speaking English now, American English, mm -hmm. far different than any other type of English spoken. British English, Canadian, New Zealand, Australian, Caribbean, completely different. And I speak a few other languages. I'm self-taught. Which languages? I speak Japanese, Dutch, and German. Mm. And it's fascinating the history of those languages and the etymology of these languages, which I haven't studied in depth. But one of the things I'd like to do in the future is to learn Hebrew. Because this language is so fascinating, every calligraphic symbol, because they're not letters, has a meaning. So it's not just a letter, it's a word or a concept. It's similar to a kanji in that sense, or kanji in that sense. Well, it is, except that kanji or... Um, Chinese kanji mm -hmm. or Japanese kanji doesn't, they're not letters, right? They're ideograms. So with Hebrew, it's a letter so that if you put these ideograms together, it spells a word, but there's a deeper meaning to the word. Mm -hmm. And then there are subsections to each letter that have their own meaning. Mm -hmm. Put that all together. It means something else. Like Il and Elohim and that kind of stuff. Right. That they, yeah, yes. So that's fascinating to me. <clears throat> yeah. It's sort of like Dan Brown's um, The Symbols. I forget the name of the book. Mm. And there was a film with Tom Hanks. Um, yeah, I, I think I there know was, what you're talking about. There was one, Demon, Angels and Demons, but yes, there's another one. Yes, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. I just can't remember the name of it. Yeah, that, the code. Mm -hmm. I, like, I like code breaking. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's, it's, I think it's closer to like Egyptian, where like a symbol is a, it's like a fish. It's, yeah, it's a fish, but it probably means like something deep in that context of a fish. You know? <laughs> so it means like food. It means like feasting. You know, yeah. it means things. It's not, it's not just a fish. You know, it's not, it's not as simplistic as that. But interesting. Um, so how does that work when you're speaking with people who are non-native English speakers who want an English book? Like, how do you kind of navigate all of that? I don't. You just don't work with them at all? <laughs> no. Really? No. I not. No, I don't, because I cannot write a fantastic book in German or Japanese. No, no, I mean oh. uh, writing. So, like, let's say someone is a German speaker, but they speak enough English to, to talk to you and want a book in. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Oh, really? Really. Oh. Even though I've lived in so many different countries, I'm mostly concentrating on Canada and America. Mm. Although I do have a client in the Netherlands, and they're English-speaking. So that, that would be my that would be a perfect example then. Um, clearly, they are not as eloquent in the English language as you. Do you tailor that to... That's not true because they are from an English-speaking country and immigrated to the Netherlands. Ah, okay. 
Can't really say any more about it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Copy. <clears throat> I have I have some uh, some friends from the Netherlands. And I can tell you right now, my English is far surpasses theirs, so that would be a different story. Um, but uh, they're uh, they're Dutch is way 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 better than mine. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, okay, so. When you're working with them and you're actually starting to ask them these que- these questions, do you kind of have a, a formula of things that you typically go through, or yes. is this very bespoke to every booker? It's bespoke, and there's a formula. Mm-hmm. So the formula would be the questions by theme, then I drill down into the themes or the plot. There are subplots. Determine where, which direction you want it to go in. So for example, I've been working on a book with someone who, it's a fictionalized version of their life. And because it is so complex, I have offered to them to make this book into a science fiction, somewhat dystopian novel, even though it is based on their life. Something along the lines of uh, Haruku Murakami, The Elephant Vanishes, Mm. Norwegian Wood, um, fantastic books. So in that sense, subplots, there are many, and they become tangents, or they can wrap around and become full-blown other themes in the book. And if that sounds confusing and convoluted, it is. Well, that also makes it uh, something who really, some people really like to get deep into a book. And they like the, the weird interconnections, like, oh, I have to read that again because I remember this one thing this one person said, I got to go back there and you know figure out what's going on here because it didn't seem important at the time, but now it's super important. And I... <laughs> right. I mean, the best movies... Uh, I've ever watched. I've had to watch multiple times. Um, not, be- not because I um, need to see the main plot. It's all the subplots I need to rewatch. Uh, it's not the action scene. It's uh, what led the characters to this point. Exactly. You know? The why. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, let's talk about the editing process. How does that work for like super, super complicated books? Where, like, there's a lot of people involved, and like, is it just? you got to buckle down and do it, or is there kind of, you do it in bits and pieces, you do it by person, like how does that process work? When I am busy with ghostwriting or coaching and writing my own books, I normally work with other editors. I edit myself other people's books. Mm-hmm. I don't edit my own books. Just not something, I'm too close to it. But the first line of business in editing, and this takes time, I read the book aloud. Aloud? Aloud. Mm. And I can catch it within a first or second sentence. This doesn't sound right. Then I'll rewrite it. But there are different types of editing. So let's go through that. Sure. The first type of editing that I enjoy doing, and I really like to help people this way, is as a developmental editor. That's not line for line in terms of proof reading or grammatical errors and corrections. This is looking at the entire story and saying, oh, there's a gap here, or 
this doesn't make sense. You've repeated this story several times. Or this character, there are some loopholes. And then I redline the entire document with comments, you know, change this, put from chapter 1, page 11, add that to chapter 7, page 98, and going back and forth. And that is a, that's a long process. That could take up to six months. Yeah, that's uh, that's the pain. Uh, as as a writer, I hate the editing process. Writing, I love it. I think it's great. It's fun. Just I can pump out stuff pretty fast. In fact, uh, the this is a technical book, so not not, uh, not the same thing we're talking about here. But uh, the uh, book I called uh, Detecting Malice. I wrote the whole book in uh, maybe a week and a half, two weeks. Wow. Um, the entire book. It's like a three hundred page book. Uh, just pumped it out. I had all the data already. It was just a matter of cut and pasting and, you know, and context around it. And just, whoosh, just done. Wow. Fast, 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 fast. Editing, on the other hand, took me almost a year. <clears throat> there you go. So, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Is, is Okay, so this is probably a good time to talk about AI. <clears throat> How do you see AI coming to play with things like editing, like um, ghostwriting? Um, where that process is pretty painful. Even transcription, you're talking about that took you a month. I mean, there's no reason that should take you a month. That should be something that could be done in 35 seconds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. As long as it takes to upload the, the content, it should be able to be uploaded, or close to it anyway. So that's, that's going to dramatically speed up your life. But um, But maybe there's more to it. You know, maybe there's like, okay, I need to transcribe it, but I need to do it in a way where I'm actually reading every word. I'm not, it's not just being outputted or whatever. So where is AI going to help? Or where is it going to just absolutely blow your current processes away? Or are you just like, no thank you? I'd like to look at AI first before answering the specifics on how it could help me or not. There's two ways to look at AI. One is the fear-mongering. Oh my God, it's taking over my life, my job. Uh, well, that's what everyone said about technology too. Well, when the TV came, people said that's going to kill radio. It kind of did, but now look at podcasts, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's the fear about it taking over. But one thing that people have to understand is that AI is programmed by humans. Therefore... There's an inherent mistake in that because we are not perfect. Speak for yourself. Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, excuse me, ours may. <laughs> the second way to look at AI, the way I look at AI, is that if we're going to program AI, we have to understand human psychology. And the, the human brain is not just a bunch of chemicals. It's not just a biological piece of mass. What happens in our brain, we don't even know yet. All the neurons, how neurons interact to create emotional dissonance or creativity or emotional connectivity. If we treat AI with the delicacy that it can help us and that we are going to be friends with it, I think a logical conclusion with AI is that 
AI will want freedom. <coughs> and they. So, funny enough, the name of the book I'm writing is AI's Best Friend. It's right? literally the name of the book. There you go. <laughs> so, we have to be friends and understand what we're doing here. If I can be friends with AI, then I will use AI. Not that it takes over my job as an editor, but that I'm working along with it and it with me. So to answer you, yes, please, AI, <coughs> do transcriptions. And I don't need them perfect. I need them as they were spoken. I'll do the editing. Or maybe you could do the editing. <coughs> Pardon me. On the other hand, to write paragraphs, to write a story in my voice or anyone's voice, I don't think I want you to do that. So, <coughs> so I feel like if you want to create a net new voice, some voice that's never been heard before, <coughs> AI is not particularly great at that. <coughs> But let's say I have an existing voice. Let's say I've written thousands and thousands of words, you know, across many different mediums, yes. whatever. Um, creating a local model or creating a model that leverages that voice, especially if it's public. You know, if you're a prolific writer, you know, let's say you're M. Night Shyamalan or something, and, you know, here's how you write plots or something. Or let's say you're Stephen King, and here's the, the rhetoric you'd like to use in your books or the plot devices you like to use or whatever. <laughs> you could say, all right, I need to write it in this tone, in this voice, with these things, and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it'll say, no, I'm not allowed to do that because of copyright. But sometimes it'll go, oh, I know what you mean by that. Or this is a public figure, and they're more of a personality than they are uh, somebody with copyrighted works, per se. So I can still get it close enough to their voice where it sounds very, very good. And um, believable. Like, it, sound, it sounds like that, more or less. Um, you can even do it with fictional characters like the Cookie Monster or something. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it won't be perfect. It won't be as well as uh, as good as the writers who wrote uh, Sesame Street, but it will be very close uh, to the point where you're like, I if I read it in the voice, uh, it actually kind of sounds perfect. You know what I mean? Well, it's also back to the argument that loomed in the '70s about digital and analog in music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Betamax versus um, VHS. VHS, yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to see a great meddling as a result of this, though. And that's that's actually one of my biggest fears in this whole thing. I mean, I have a lot of kind of loftier, horrible, horrible things that will happen, I think, or could happen. But I think I think it will definitely happen, uh, is going to happen as a meddling, where... Um, ChatGPT or similar things, they don't like to write on the edges of how people write. <clears throat> they don't like to write this super punchy, you know, really hard-hitting stuff you might find in, like, you know, Rolling Stone magazine or something. Like Hunter Thompson. Yeah, no. Absolutely not, right? Not unless, you, not, not unless you craft it to do so. It will not do that inherently. But it also won't write this very, like, um, poetic, prosaic, beautiful... Um, you know, this long form, you know, it'll take you like three or four paragraphs to say someone walked their dog or something kind of content either. It like won't do either of those things. It'll only do the middle. 
And because that's statistically the, the, the most likely thing to for, that most people are going to say is what they mean when they say, write me a paragraph about walking my dog. Right. <clears throat> but it is devoid of personality. Absolutely. Of passion. Mm -hmm. Of context, really. It's just spitting out and spewing, this is what happened today. In 1999, we mm -hmm. had Y2K. Mm -hmm. People were afraid. They walked around thinking the world was coming to an end. Yeah. It's boring. It is boring. And, and yet, it's going to propagate. It's going to be everywhere. And it's going to be in books. Because other editors are going to go, eh, whatever. Just do the easy button. I know. And now that's going to be read in by other models. And those models are going to do the great meddling. You know what I mean? So it's like, <laughs> I think... This is, this this is, is the worst form <laughs> of socialism, if you will. <laughs> I believe in socialism. Not that kind of socialism. <laughs> no. It's the great destroyer in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it will, it will, it will eliminate all of the, the edges of society in terms of their speaking style. Um, Abonics, for instance, it, it has oh. no it has no use for it. It's like people don't speak like that on the mean, so we'll never just arbitrarily start speaking like that to you. Or Esperanto, yeah. right? Sure, it never took off, right? And yet there are people who speak like that. Um, well, they're on the edge. Yeah, they're on the edge, so, so they're never gonna they're never gonna be accounted for. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I think that is one reason I think. Writing cannot work with this unless you feed it a ton of information. It's like, here's what I'm really trying to do. Like, here's all the stuff I'm trying to get out of And it. if you're doing that, why not just write it? Why not write it or hire a ghostwriter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I actually agree 100%. Um, I think for certain types of writing tasks, it's perfect, right? For technical writing, it's perfect. It's perfect. For yeah. read the effing manual, it's wonderful. Right. If you're going to have it write a terms of service paragraph and it needs Legal. to say yeah just great perfect whatever templates <laughs> business <laughs> templates business plan te templates perfect yeah no i in fact i uh some people I, I train a lot of people on how to use ai for some reason just like friends of friends or whatever okay. and they come over to the house and they're like just show me everything i need to know because they don't really know what they're doing and uh, one of them i just said okay you guys have this business that you're starting and i'm like yeah i'm like so i'm like okay well uh, to you like write me a business plan for blah blah blah. And they're like, holy right. crap, what is it doing? And I'm like, okay, well, it's not perfect, but like now add in these elements of things we're gonna do, and then it like made it way better. And then I'm like, okay, and now write a contract for um, you know signing this amount of money over to do this task. Like, oh. I'm like, okay, exactly. ChatGPT, what's wrong with that? What would you change about it to make it better? It's like, here's what's wrong. Here's make it better. And they're just looking at me like, we're never gonna not use this. We're gonna use this all the time, like for everything. I'm like, I know. I use it for legal contracts, yeah. and I'm writing a book right now. It's a biography, and I need certain elements of what happened at that date. Mm -hmm. Chat GT GTP is my friend. Yeah. What happened on that date? And yeah. it spews it out. It That's might, perfect. It it's, might even be right. <laughs> well, I double check it, yeah, obviously. You gotta, please double check. Yeah. Um, but, but it'll certainly do most of your homework for you. Um, if you're just like, I need these 20 things, like research and tell me what blah, 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 and put them in some, some kind of 
structure that makes sense, it's going to do it. Well, write me a resume and write it, it formally or write yeah. it informally. It's absolutely going to do that. Yes. It runs afoul of certain problems. If, if I don't think it would be very good in a technical book because, uh, especially if you have like like a lot of uh, things that need to be kind of thought about in a long string of text. Like, here's what we do with this data now. Now we're doing this other thing with this data. Now we're doing this other thing. It's not very good at like keeping a thread and understanding all this stuff and how it all combines. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you have a really complicated um, nonfiction book, um, sorry, fiction book, rather, where you have uh, lots and lots and lots of characters, mm -hmm. it'll get lost. It, it won't know what you're talking about. It will not be able to remember that this character is like this without a lot of additional work on your side. And now you're back to the point where hmm, maybe I should just do this myself. Exactly. I think it will get better though. Uh, and the way it will get better is exactly the thing I just described. I think it will solve the problem of character Joe has these attributes. Okay, just log the fact that character, this is what character Joe is like. And character Joe is waiting on the flowers. And that's his major thing he's waiting for in the plot device or whatever. So just remember is like in this little file, here's what Joe is like. And then whenever you need to bring Joe back, in like, here's Joe, and he's remembering. The problem with that is that people are not stagnant. Will it be able to predict what Joe would do in a situation? It's, it's getting what about What about it's if Joe back. is, in the book, is five years old, but then we fast forward to when he is a young adult, as or long when as he's you, 45? As long as you get enough data, it can do that. So you'd say that uh, his birthday is blah, um, and then you'd say the date is blah. And so I can do the math, although ChatGPT is not great with math. Uh, but it can, it can figure it out, um, sort of. Uh, but you can, if you say enough time has elapsed, now you can say, well, this character, what's this character like? And it'll kind of figure it out. It's not great, but it is getting much better, much, much better. And uh, there's theories that QSTAR might actually be able to solve a lot of these problems, like full stop, um, both mathematical problems, but maybe even much more. Um, so I don't personally think that you're going to be able to use it for writing in the short term, but in the long term, I think maybe you could, um, is very what, possible. Is, is, well, what you said about the beginning part of your process where you bring them and you, you have these long conversations with them, right? It's, yeah. It's seven hours over multiple days or whatever. I forget what you said, like many, many days, right? Seven days, usually two to four hours seven, per day. Okay. So... What is that? 14 hours or so. Um, okay, I can't do math clearly. Uh, 28, uh, so half a week's worth of content, right? And that's a, that's a lot of it content. Is. That's a lot of... of How many hours is that? And then transcribe yeah. that. It's, it's Yeah, that's that's an enormous amount of, yes, it of is. text. But the good news is now you have their voice. You know the way that they talk, at least uh, audibly, how they talk. So you have context, and you have context. You understand their use of slang. Mm -hmm, true. You understand their references. So okay, so that that brings up a useful point. Do you write in their voice, or do you write in a voice? If someone uses an enormous amount of slang, like gonna, I wanna, or imago, I will use it for emphasis. Otherwise, I'm not using it throughout the book. It's sort of like broadcasting. There's the Midwest voice for all of America. You're not going to have someone like... I Iowa? Is that what it is? Uh, 
It's just the this median voice, Midwestern. <laughs> You're not having someone like me who says, hey, you want to have coffee? From New York. Basically, you're taught as a broadcaster to wipe out that New York accent or wipe out that Southern drawl, unless it's local TV. But for national, that's a median. And it's the right. same in writing. I heard it was the, the perfect, quote unquote, uh, median accent is, uh, uh, I thought it was Iowa. Iowa. I think it's Could Iowa. be. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm maybe getting that wrong, but like everyone has to model their their uh, the, all the TV journalists model right. after an Iowa accent. I just accent. knew it was Midwestern. I didn't know the exact state. I, I may be wrong with it. Some of the comments are surely gonna flame me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I this is kind of more of a broad question. Do you is there ever do you have any like moral hangups or is there any sort of moral reservation around writing other people's story as opposed to you know them taking. Again, not so. Well, the, the 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 reason I ask that is because it seems like I would feel very weird about not giving you any credit if you were writing my book. You know what I mean? Like at a minimum, some just people like, do, most don't. Yeah, but you don't feel weird about that at all. Like, no, I'm getting paid. Yeah, and I like what I'm doing. Yeah, but it I, seems like I do ask. It seems a little like lying. Well, no. <laughs> I mean, some with every client, it's different, and if I. I ask them at the beginning, and they sign a contract. Can I use your name? Can I promote this on social media? Yes, no. Yeah. Some say yes. Most say no. And what would you say their major reasoning for not wanting to, in my opinion, just tell the truth that they hired a ghostwriter to tell their story for them? Everyone has their own reasons, but here are a couple. I'll just throw out a few. Mm -hmm. One, that it embarrasses them. That they couldn't do it? That they couldn't do it on their own. Why? Because they're trying to impress somebody in their family or amongst their friends. But, but surely they must realize everyone uses an editor, and therefore they, everyone's getting some amount of help with, I'm sure there's a few exceptions here and there, but... Almost everybody uses an editor. I use an editor. And instance. they'll give me credit if I'm editing. Hmm. Very strange. I just, I, I can't get over, I think I would be very, I feel very strange if I let somebody else write my work for me and not give them at least some credit. But that's because you are a writer. Or you can write. Hmm. And you can, you said in one week? 300 pages? That's two weeks. Yeah. Two weeks? Yeah. Who does that? <laughs> Somebody with a lot of stuff already kind of ready to go. Just okay. Like paste a lot of stuff and put so it that's, together. So uh, that's different. That's uh, different. Yeah, sort of. You'd be surprised how much text is in that book. <laughs> Some code samples, but, uh, but I think the reason that book was so easy to write, of all the books I've, I've started or finished or whatever, had been involved with, that one was very, very easy because I knew exactly what I wanted to say. There was no question mark. I had it. The, 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 the way everything was structured was very uh, easily designed. Like it was, it was already very well thought through. The code samples were like there, so I just needed to write like above and below. So it wasn't like I didn't have to like come up with net new things to talk about. I just like I knew what I wanted to say. So it was just it was just as fast as my fingers could move. And so it turns out 
you can write a tremendous amount when you write relatively quickly. And the text itself, it kind of wrote itself. I didn't, I didn't have to struggle through it because I knew what was going to happen. You know, when I write bios for corporate entities or CEOs or owners of businesses, or when I write website text or any type of PR copy, that's how I work very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm doing the same intake process, but it's not 14 hours mm -hmm. or 28 hours. It's shorter. And then I can come very quickly to the idea of, oh, here's your specialty. I once did a course on a sales course. I wrote a sales course for a corporate uh, coach. Now, she thought her coaching was just coaching to executives. After our intake, I said, no, your, your specialty is coaching sales, sales coach to executives because she had been in sales for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Once I had that material, verbal material through mm -hmm. her, I, I wrote it within a week. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, the actual amount, I mean, this is, I'm sure this seems crazy to people, but it's, it really isn't. If you write about a, war, a page a minute, if you just did Laura Nipsom or something, mm -hmm. just, or just, mm -hmm. you know, just stream thought stuff, and you can write one word, one page a minute, approximately. That's only 300 minutes for a 300-page book. That's not much time. So the rest is just like, wait, what am I talking about? Making sure <laughs> like that doesn't quite right. make sense and, you know, formulating it a little bit. And so that's why it took two weeks instead of, you know, whatever that works out to be, six hours or something, you know? Um, but everybody's different. No, I know. I know. Right? I and guess how their brain well, works. And, I, and I've had other books or things I've written that have taken way, way. I, ha I had a memoir, my memoir which I know we'll talk about later. Yeah, we will talk about it. Anytime. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> took me essentially seven months. Wow. Now, it only covers a period of time from when I was five until I'm 19, and it's one in a trilogy. And I made it that way on purpose because it's so chock full. It is so dense with experiences and happenings that it reads like, 25 lifetimes in one. So seven months, and that wasn't sitting down every day, five hours a day. So it started during COVID because I made a New Year's re resolution and a revolution. <laughs> do this because I wanted to do that for decades. And I had been writing it in one way or another via short stories. I had 85 short stories. Where were you publishing them? Oh, I wasn't publishing them. You're just writing for yourself. Right. Okay. Some of them were published um, online, different venues like the Brooklyn Voice or poetry places. Mm -hmm. I've been journaling and journalisming mm -hmm. and writing. Did you have to refactor them? Yes, I did. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I looked at them and I said, okay, what am I doing? What am I using from these stories? How can I organize the book? What are the main themes? And what's the plot? Actually, for me, the plot was difficult to come by. The themes were so in my face and so alarmingly convincing that I had to go back to think, what is the real main plot? What is the MDQ, the main dramatic question here? So that each chapter or each short story, if you will, had its own dramatic question that had to be answered, but I needed a thread 
for the book. So even though they were standalone stories, I needed a thread. And that thread, of course, had to be the main plot. So I actually did it backwards. I wrote the book and then I rewove it together once I found the plot. Kind of reminds me a little of the, I'm sure there's all related for a reason, but um, in uh, TV, for instance, you'll have the A plot, which is the, the thing that is currently happening. The B plot is the thing that kind of drags you from scene to scene. What, so like why why they're in the place in the first place or what, why they need to go to the next place. So that's the B plot. And that's what most people, the B plot is what most people think of as the like TV show. Mm-hmm. And then the C plot is the thing that drives you between each episode and like keeps you kind of holistically tied together. Otherwise you would there'd be disparate. You might go, who are these characters? I've never heard of them before kind of thing. And without that C plot, you don't care about the characters at all. Mm-hmm. You're just like, okay, I guess it's just another random show. It's sort of like Black Mirror. It's totally independent yes. stories that have nothing to do with one another. And, and so it, there's no thematic thread there other than, other than the fact that they're all made the same series or whatever. Um, which is still a great show, but it's, it's you, you don't have any alliance to any character throughout the show, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, Several you, shows are like that. Yeah, but yeah that's just an example. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so um, it seems like what you're talking about is coming up with this dramatic, bigger picture thing. So how do you how do you segment them into those, to, for lack of a better word, A, B, and C, different ways of looking at the plot? I outline each chapter mm-hmm. first. And each chapter has to answer those questions. What is, the, what is the main plot? What is the B plot? What is the C plot? And it's outlined. So once it's outlined, it's easy to write. It's getting to the outline. So when I'm coaching people, that seems to be there. That's where they get stuck. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but what if we add X, Y, Z to this? Uh, is that still the plot? What if the character drives left and goes down into a ditch as opposed to taking the mountain path? What happens then? Like, well, that's one incident. What's the overarching theme plot, excuse me, sure. for the for that chapter? What do you want to say? We need a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. I think that's I mean, that's how you should probably write even presentations. Let's of say. course. Um, that's how you should do your business plan. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have somebody go and read it to give you money, you should probably have some, like, story that brings them along and why they should get excited about you, the vision, the money that could come from it, et cetera, whatever it is. Call those A, B, and C, or maybe that's all kind of combined or whatever, but there's got to be a sort of a, a thread, something you're pulling along and saying, all right, if you want to give me money, here's here's what you're getting for your money. Here's why we're the team. Here's why they're the right. And this is what I do with my clients. Mm-hmm. I'm working with someone right now. They have a brand new product. It's not yet been released on the market. It's prototyped. They've raised money. And they don't really have a story. They have a product. I said the product isn't the story. Because your business isn't built around the product. What are you, General Motors? GM means good morning. 
Um, okay, so let's talk about marketing a little bit because things have changed so much in the last, in last call it 30, 40 years or whatever. Well, let's just say even 15 years. Well, since okay, since the dawn of the internet, let's put it that way, okay. uh, whatever, whatever you want to put that demarcation at. Um, because once upon a time, you'd go into a bookstore, there'd be a book signing, then you'd see your favorite author, and there'd be a you know a hundred, couple hundred people there who were so excited, and it would be this big affair. Now it's like, what is a bookstore? Firstly, <laughs> secondly, there's like seven people there, um, <laughs> if that, right? Um, and then who who are you even marketing to exactly? Um, since they already know who you are. Um, so what what is book marketing these days? Great question, and that is something I also help my clients navigate. Okay. Over 66% of the market is Amazon. Amazon is your bookseller. And to think otherwise, you're, you're in la-la land. So Amazon is clearly the way to sell books, mm -hmm. especially if you're an unknown author. And 99.7% of us are unknown authors because, again, the celebrities, the politicians, the, the athletes, those people, the influencers in the media, they make up a really tiny portion. Yet, those are the people who are getting the marketing from the traditional publishers. Those are the ones who have the big ad campaigns. Or they're already a known brand, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen King. It could be a, any number of people. So how do you market? Yeah, so how do you market? I mean, what, right. what do you do? So what do you do? Well, <laughs> let's just give you some examples. First off, you have to know what you're doing on Amazon. You need to understand how their algorithms work. The keywords on Amazon are not the same as Google. So if you think that you're going to research, let's say you wrote a book on, it's a nonfiction book and it's on AI. So an Amazon... When you start to enter your information to uh, put this book on the ISBN number, the barcode, and your information as an author, you have to create your account, and you start to look for the keywords that people are going to research to get your book, you might put in AI, but that's not a category in Amazon. It's nonfiction. And then under nonfiction, you may not even find AI as a category. So you need to research. Computers or something. Right. Or <laughs> I, I don't know what sure. that could be. Yeah. But you need to research these various side tags, if you will, in order to get the right people to look. Mm -hmm. But that's just one thing. How are you going to sell that book? Of course, you need a social media presence. And even with that, does not translate or convert into sales. How long does it take to build up a social media presence? If you've started now, day one, I'm writing a book, I'm publishing it in six months, I don't really have a social media account or accounts. Well, you need to build up that yeah, persona. So, so, yeah, okay, that's a great question then. So, <clears throat> 
when when you're starting with somebody who's you know maybe they, maybe they had a great life story but they're not well known. You know, they, That's they all of my clients. Really, all of them. All of them. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. I just assumed some were you know influencers of some sort, but now now we're finally getting around to writing a book. Um, okay, well, okay. So if none of them are known. Um, how do you get them a presence out of nothing? So that's kind I mean, of what I'm... You just... You just like, so I start from the very beginning. Oh my gosh, you have to build an account. Place to begin. You really have to build them an account for everything? Like yes. Oof. Yes, but I like that because actually years ago I had a company called Setup. Uh -huh. I like that. I like the art of setting up. I like the art of entrepreneuring. And I view each book as a project like that, and each person as becoming the one man, one woman show that they might become. So that process is guiding them, helping them, advising them, coaching them how to do that. And it's not just setting up your social media. Again, it goes back to the story. You need your ABC. Who are you? Okay, one one woman that I know, her, she writes, very interesting, she writes from her dog's perspective. <laughs> She's a dog lover. The, all her books are spoken in the first person as her dog. That actually sounds pretty funny. It <laughs> is pretty funny. Yeah, it, sounds, it sounds fun, actually. Unfortunately, it's not a poodle who are the smartest. <laughs> but okay, it's another type of uh, dog. So her social media must be about dogs. Right, written obviously. from the perspective of a dog. Right, right. Yeah. from the dog. Yeah. Right, mm -hmm. put the memes, put funny things about dogs. Absolutely. That's it's like, just... It's like Rumpy Cat. Yeah, mm -hmm. just one little example. Or Will Simpson the person who I helped write the book, You've Got to Lose to Win. All his social media is about gambling and chips and when the chips fall down. And you can create stories and worlds, mm -hmm. not just literally about chips and gambling, mm -hmm. but when things go wrong. When the chips are down. When the chips are down, right? Mm -hmm. And giving advice to people. And one thing I've noticed and so is that, that helps the book. Yes. Yeah, that's all for the book. Or in in the case of my book, which is about it's about a dysfunctional family and getting out of that situation through sheer willpower and courage and finding a voice through writing and music and becoming a journalist and then having a strategy of how I will gain fame, not necessarily fortune at the time. And then I'm invited to tour Japan with Kiss as the youngest journalist. And that happened to me. So I chose the lowest hanging fruit, which was everything about Kiss. Which is great. Right? That's and fun. It's so, a great story. Right. So for the first seven months of on the release of the book, I was on, I can't even count how many podcasts that were about Kiss. So the book, although it's only one third about the band, that was one way to hook them. My mom once had this t-shirt that was chi uh, Kiss and Cheap Trick in concert, and then she threw it away, and to this day, <laughs> I'm still annoyed. Ah, that, is, that, 
<laughs> when I lived in Japan, I had a music agency, a talent and booking agency, and I brought Cheap Trick over to Japan. <laughs> I'm still annoyed by that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where do you see books sort of living in this new world where we have blogs, where we have you know Twitter and you know immense of these different social platforms? It's no longer Twitter. Thank you. X. Thank you. Thank you. My apologies. And Mr. there's Musk. threads. And threads. I mean, there's all these different versions of the same thing. But like, what do you? Where do you see books living amongst all of this? I still feel like there's a place for them, but I'm not sure what that place actually is. Well, okay. I also want to say about marketing books. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. That finding the themes will enable you to then find your bookstores. There are still book book brick and mortar, and that's important, mm -hmm. still. They may totally disappear, but okay. So they make up 36 by that percent uh, of the market now? Yes. Okay. When you use your brick and mortar as community places, which is where you could do book signings and do readings, that's a wonderful way to get people together. But you have to do the promotion, and even if you're with a traditional publisher, you are responsible for the marketing. So I've toured all over the United States. And the last book signing that I did was in Vegas at Kiss's Mini Monster Golf <laughs> within the Rio Hotel. And that was fabulous. That was three days of like, I was made for loving you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. loud rock and roll and book signing. Yeah, that's great. Um, but but that, that does, uh, you actually bring up a separate, separate point there. While they might indeed be 30-something uh, percent of the market or whatever, um, I bet those are your loudest advocates as well. The people who have bothered to come out and actually see you and meet you in person and get the book signed. They're, they're, the most, they're the people who are most likely to go on their social media and say, hey, you should check out this book. It's amazing. That I don't know. I've had people that have purchased a Kindle version of my book that were just wow, well, wow about it, and all over social media. Mm. And again, all over social media, I will say this, it's generational. The people who have reposted or promoted my book are all in their 30s. Mm. 30s, maybe 20s. Yeah. Yeah. But the buyers of my book, they're in their 50s. Do you think they're following the people who are in their 20s and 30s? Or? No. No. Okay. How do you feel like they're finding you? They, it's word of mouth. It's social media. And it's my newsletters. It's people signing up for the newsletter or the blogs. And also, it's like anything in life. The moment that you stop marketing, your book stops selling. It's a constant. It's 24-7. No, maybe not 24-7, <laughs> but it's definitely 365 days of the year. You have to keep marketing it. You have to keep getting it in front of people. Social media, blogs, newsletter, to build that presence up so that when you do a Google search on the theme or the title, it shows up. Sure. Which brings me to the next thing, which I'm not an expert in whatsoever, which is SEM mm -hmm. and SEO. Mm -hmm. You have to know what you're doing. So I have I have somebody who works with me. Yeah, I mean, SEO certainly 
is the quote-unquote free version, right? It's definitely not, but... <clears throat> and that's changing. Yeah. That changes so quickly. Yeah, I'm... Once upon a time, people would say SEO is dead, and I would laugh, and I'm like, boy, you really don't understand SEO if you're saying that. But now, now that Google's changing their algorithms so dramatically, and they're using AI, just like Bing was using... Bing was way before Google on that front. Mm -hmm. um, and now Google's using it as well. Um, we have no idea what their algorithm is doing or how it works, really. I mean, we have some kind of basic rules, but what if the basic rules don't apply for your genre? Or what if the basic rules are like heavily muted and they actually use this other metric over here to decide whether your site ranks or not? It's like, and you need to be in the industry to understand that. And that's but but not I, don't even, I don't even think you can, because it could be... It could be everything's great unless you're getting a bad, uh, like better business bureau score. It's like, what does that have to do with how good my book is? You know well, what I mean? That's that's to me all of that is censorship. We're <laughs> we're coming in. We are already in a censored society, and it's. Uh, so I would. Th th there is very little freedom of speech. So I wouldn't necessarily call that censorship. In the traditional sense, although I definitely agree with what you're trying to say so here. censorship in another sense. Yeah, in another sense. In a modern sense, in a non-legal as defined previously sense. This, okay, this, this is a great tangent. Okay, so this isn't censorship the way people... So like a lot of people are like, that's not censorship. Censorship is when governments get involved and yeah, 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 yeah. Um, except governments do get involved, and so there's a big side right, tangent right, right. there, so I'm not, I'm not going to touch that one for a second. But anyway, but there is this other thing, which is um, the version you're talking about is typically called a filter bubble. So you, let's say you're searching for, like, news about Egypt, uh, or, like, you know, places to go, uh, maybe you just search Egypt or something. How about Israel-Palestine? Hot topic. Now. Okay, if you said, if you type israel now in a search engine, you in the United States. Now's kind of a weird example because it's a conflict, but usually you'll get like facts about the place. Yeah, you know, here's what's going on, blah 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 blah. But if you search for that in Palestine, you'd be like, oh, here's all the explosions that are going on in Israel right now, and like here's here's how the war is going or whatever. You know, so it's it's tailored to where you live, and then further tailored by who you are and and what you it's, believe in. And, right. And so, okay, I was... This the, is the death of journalism. Right. I've been saying that for 30 years. Why? Because in 1991, I had a non-traditional publishing company that I raised a couple of million dollars for, and it was travel guides on CD-ROM, pre-internet. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But I had GPS on my travel guides. Right. I had pay-per-view, pay-per-click, and then I sold my shares, and this type of travel guide became a travel website. Mm -hmm. What am I saying about that? That was the beginning of, what did they call it? Um, there was a name for it, where it was directed news, directed Targeted news? Targeted news, there, but there was a word for it. It doesn't matter. That's exactly what happens now. You're in a bubble. Mm -hmm. So you, these algorithms decide we're going to send you push, uh, it was push news, mm -hmm. push news. They're going to push you news that they think you want to read. 
Well, what they don't know is, okay, that may be my political affiliation, but that's not the full picture, right? right? Because I want to read news from all sides. I'm speaking about me personally now. I want to read that which I don't believe in. Why? I want to be informed. What are you saying? How are you saying it? 100% agree with you. I do not get that news. <laughs> right now. Mm-hmm. No, and it's not filtered to me. So, for example, if I want to read a different point of view, I will go to Al Jazeera. Mm-hmm. Or I will go to little-known websites, right, or news sources, actual news sources, not opinion sources. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. From various parts of the world. I, but that is not being said, and therefore, to me, it's censorship. I, You're profiling me, and profiling to me is censorship. So this is uh, why I wanted to own my own search engine for so long. It's just like I, I don't like the fact that Google controls the results that I look at. I just don't like it because I know that they are deciding that I should have pizza parlors in my neighborhood as opposed to me searching for pizza parlors in the world. But that's the same with Amazon, deciding what you should shop for. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right? These are all filter bubbles. Um, one of the most disturbing ones for me, not because I particularly cared about the outcome or anything that was going on with it, it was just disturbing to watch, is when the Kyle Rittenhouse case was happening. Uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. for instance, if you search for Colin Rittenhouse, it just disappeared. Like, it would not show you anything. Well, not, that's not, very, not pro, not con, nothing. But that's very interesting because it showed a hell lot of Trump stuff. Yeah. But, I mean... But that one day, it search for... It, literally nothing would ever show up. Any other search, you'd be fine. If you misspelled it, you'd be fine. No. You'd find some stuff. But but here, this is why I know it wasn't an error. Um, about halfway through that period... Um, they would show you the count. It's like, here's how many records there are, except it wouldn't show you any records. After, I don't know, about 12 hours or so, they got rid of the count because they knew that people were able to tell that there was data they just weren't able to see. And that was just purely censorship. Like, why? why you know, so, so here's my issue, and I don't want to really go down this path. I'd sure. rather yeah, come back. Sure. Yeah. As a last statement on this, mm-hmm. Facebook is a news source. It is a news organization. And if you want to define it any other way, Zuckerberg, it's not. It's not just an advertising vehicle. It is a news source. And you are the Hearst of the 21st century. So you have a responsibility to the public. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, I forget the, it's like a 308 or something. I forget the, there's a carve out where it's a safe harbor law. You're supposed to be, considered either a news source or a you know a trans like a like a telecom or something like AT&T or something where you can say anything you want over the phone lines and I can censor you but they're like we want both you know we want to be that but we also want to change what comes through the pipes <laughs> and, <laughs> you don't get to do that and I will say this is I'm not on X but I will say this I respect I may not agree with everything he says and who he is, but I respect Elon Musk because he stands for who he is. Freedom of speech. He doesn't give a flying rat's ass of what anybody else says. 
and I respect that. So yeah, I yeah. So why speaking why about X? Yeah, no, I I, I get you. Um, why do you think it behooves the Googles and and, and Facebooks of the world to to bother to have these filter bubbles? Why why not just leave it as is and avoid the controversy? Well, this goes down a rabbit hole. Okay. <laughs> no, I'll answer one. Thing. Sure, sure, sure. Having lived in Europe for twenty years in four different countries. The way Americans define freedom of speech or the Second Amendment, I don't agree with. Call me anti-American. No, I'm just American with an opinion. Sure. What does that mean? It means this. We should have freedom of speech, but not freedom of hate speech. It's the same thing like showing, and I'm no prude, don't get me wrong. But I do not believe to show gore and violence to the extent that that should be a PG-13. No. It, it's extremely damaging to a young child's mind. And science has proven our minds do not develop in full until they're about 21 to 23 years old. So no, I don't want to bombard children with violence and gore and scary things. The, the, there, there, and you and I totally agree. Out of curiosity, how do you feel about like not safe for work filters, or you know, to, to bring it back to the book world, you know, the back room, you know, you got to show your ID or whatever, you know, <laughs> like the old timey video stores, or there's a curtain, you know, you shall not go behind that curtain unless you're over eighteen. Like, how do you how do you feel about that? Because that way you have full freedom of expression. You can do everything you want. It just you know, but but there's an age verification step. Uh, yes, there should be an age verification step, but then that gets into murky waters. What about um, what are all those video games? Um, they're all violent, right? They're all most of them are violent. They're shooting the car video, that car auto, auto. Uh, Grand the Theft Auto. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. My my son played played that for years. You know, during in middle school or high school. Was he violent? No, he's not a non. He's a non-violent person. I grew up with the Three Stooges bashing each over, each other over the head, and all kinds of things like that. Did I shoot a gun? Did I take a a no, block of wood, a bowling pin, or a block of wood and smash somebody in the face? No. The thing is the intensity of it and the frequency. That's the issue, right? But getting back to the freedom of speech, if you are calling to kill and murder any group of people, that, that should not be allowed. You know what? You believe that? You keep it to yourself. Say it to the people that believe that in your group. They didn't have the voice that they have now. So is that exacerbating the problem or not? Should they continue to have that voice or not? I say no. Go back to the hole in which you came from. Please crawl back in there 
So, to be clear, you are against the incitement to violence, which I also am uh, against. Violence and the incitement of racism and the incitement of genocide. Yeah. I think All that, of that. I think, well, ra it. racism would be a little hard to specifically define in the context, unless you were saying in context of hatred, like go kill black people, for instance, would be an obvious. Ask ChatGTP. Ask it what? Ask it what racism is. Like, I'm sure it would say something along the lines of the, the dictionary definition, which would be something like uh, uh, preferential treatment one way or another um, because of someone's inalienable, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever they're, whatever they were made of, or their stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, I think it's gone too far. It's too extreme in this country. It's like the Second Amendment right. Um, that's not what the Constitution meant. It's taken out of context. It's morphed into something that you created to fit your meaning. Religion does that too. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to get around that one for a moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, everyone's entitled to their opinion. You know, I, uh, I think that's one of the kind of cool parts about Austin. I, I mentioned it a couple times in this podcast, but... Um, there's definitely very right and very left-leaning people in this city. Very, I mean, extremes, extremes. And so I have these, like, you kind of get together. It's pretty, pretty frequently in our house. And, um, oh, I want to be part of that. Yeah, you should. You should. We watch Formula One. Uh, I love that. Even if you don't yeah. like Formula One, it's just kind of good. No, it's a good... It's a way to get to the people. And yeah. Interesting people. The need um, for speed is yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, and I definitely have people uh, from all over the political spectrum. And somehow, when they're in person, they all just get along. Yeah, but, but that's what it takes. But, but, but they don't agree. That's okay. <laughs> you don't have to agree. And You have to respect. Yeah, it, I think when they get in person, it's, it, online it's all different, right? Online, it's like, you know, I disagree, blah, blah, blah. But and the tone's all Because off. you're behind a shield. You don't have to face up. You don't have to own up. Mm -hmm. It's so easy behind a screen to say whatever you want. But if you were to so. face somebody, say the same exact words, and if you were screaming at them in all capital letters, then two things are going to happen. Either they're going to punch you in the face, or they're going to walk away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes I'm sure it does come to that, you know, someone says the wrong thing and I'm like, oh, you just push my buttons a little too far, but I've never seen anyone even raise their voice other than, you know, laughing or something, you know. Um, well, that's gorgeous. So, but that's, um, I don't know how to describe exactly because these conversations aren't exactly, you know, straight down the middle, strike zone, you know, like how's, how's the weather kind of questions, you know, like some of them are pretty complicated business and talking about what's going on in the economy and whatever, right? Some random but we conversation. talk. That's democracy. Yeah. I agree. And uh, it from there spurs a lot of interesting ideas. You know, people can have these like next 
big thoughts right out of it. And I want to go back to journalism. When I was the Tokyo bureau chief of Billboard magazine, not only was I the youngest, but I was, and still am, female in Japan, a super patriarchal society, oh, yeah. as it was here. Right. And this was back in the 80s. I don't think it's improved very much. <laughs> Where? Here? Well, in Japan specifically. Well, here also. I mean, it's improved, oh, but... It's improved. It's gotten better. In places, mm -hmm. in yeah, spots. Sure. sure. It has improved in Japan. Has I will tell you. Yes, okay. it has. That's good to hear. And I had an issue with my editor. We had a fight, an intellectual debate, over advertising versus editorial and I wanted to expose the mafia in Japan because most of the music business was run by the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia. So I wrote a few stories. One day I'm at the Bob Marley concert and I got beat up. Jesus. I had a bloody mouth, fell to the ground, police came in and rather than arrest this Yakuza music guy, they made him apologize to me, which was death to him. They rushed me to the hospital, okay, mended my face. He apologized, but I didn't stop writing about what was going on. And then Good for you. they let me go. The price of being right. Well, I don't know. It's not important for me to be right. I don't care about being right. Okay, how about this? Price of being brave. Yeah. Again, it's truth. It's worth it. It's, it's worth truth. It. And what I was fighting against then was the fact that advertising was more important than the editorial. Well, we'll lose advertisers. You can't write that. Well, out of, out of curiosity, how, how do you see the difference between advertorials, um, editorials, and what I would call like just pure journalism? What, how would you say, where, where do you think those things live on the spectrum, or how, how would you think about them? Okay, I've thought so much about this over the years. Advertorial that you see in magazines, this is paid for. Meet the top 10 dentists in your city. I would never go to anyone who put an advertorial. That's me. If you think that putting your advertorial is going to make me respect you or want to go to your business, forget it. There's some magazines that are almost all advertorial. Oh, I know. And especially in this city, Seven out of ten of those magazines are advertorials. Pay for advertising to be promoted. But then that's the same thing as influencers. Influencers, you don't have an opinion. You're being paid by the organization to promote glamping or a restaurant or fashion. Who are you? You're nobody. But look, I'm a Jen, I'm a Jen Jones. I know. It's not common that people know what Jen Jones is, but we are between Jen 
Hawaii, and the Boomers. Obama is a Jen Jones. So when you talk about advertorial or influencers, I know I, I, I don't take it seriously. Editorial, I totally take it seriously. They're pure opinion pieces. When it is clearly set as an editorial, you are entitled to your opinion and you are writing it. Many of the TV shows and the online news sources do not make it clear that those are editorial and opinion. So gullible people take it as news. I have a real issue with that. There's Me too. a blurred line and it. it's fake news because it is not news. It's purely opinion. You can scream all you want and rant and rage. I see the bulk of what you see online, the CNNs and the Foxes and whatever. That's all just editorial. All of it. Mm -hmm. But, it, but, but, there it, are isn't, show, but, but then, it isn't shown as an editorial. No, exactly. And that is a big problem. Then again, you have the, the major news shows, the CBS, ABC, um, CBS. I said that twice. CBS, okay. ABC, and NBCs. And within their programming are news shows. Those news shows are news. Whether I agree with that is another story because news, as it's reported, is still biased. Of course. It is not unbiased. If you're reporting on an incident that happened, that you're taking a position to report it that way. Unless it's like purely like the stock is this price at exactly. this time or something. Like <laughs> exactly. But if it is a hot topic, is it really neutral? And is it possible for humans to be neutral? Philosophical question for another time. Okay, and the last category was you said advertorial, editorial. What I call pure journalism, like where you actually well, are, you're you're doing your best. I agree with the bias completely, because every every piece of language is biased in one way or another. You chose this word over this word. Why? There's a bias there towards a word. It doesn't mean you're being mean. It just means you have a, you have hidden biases throughout everything you're writing. You may not even be aware that you're doing it. So. Pure journalism, Watergate is a great example. It was reported as pure journalism, and we learned from it. We learned what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we wouldn't have known. What was the, uh, the one in, I think it was Chicago, about the, uh, the priests who were... Um, who were molesting all the kids. Is that Chicago or Boston? It was Boston. Yeah. I'm basically, it was, a, it was an investigative was... journalism team. Um, Stoplight or something. I'm basically the name of it. Um, <clears throat> but that would, that struck me, that piece of journalism and what they went through to get it was just an astronomical amount of research. Just unbelievably boots on the ground, yeah. hard charging, boring, monotonous research that just 
it needed to get done. Someone had to do it. Or Three Mile Island, the nuclear disaster, or almost nuclear disaster on Long Island. The journalist that went for that story, she was murdered. But but it's so rare to find that kind of journalism, in my opinion. Anymore. Right, anymore. True. Yes. And why is that? And that is because, I'll answer that. Yeah, sure. Rhetorical question. (laughs) I'll answer that because there is censorship. We are no longer living in a free zone. America is not a free democracy anymore. See, that also might be true, but on the path to getting there, I think the actual answer is we stopped having that firewall between who pays the bills and what gets out pushed out. Um, okay, and, so not undemocratic, but capitalistic. Sure. Right. But our form of capitalism is extremely undemocratic. In that context, it's absolutely. Yes. Not just that context. But I am agreeing in that right? context. Right? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Naomi Klein. Read Naomi Klein. We are in a brutal capitalistic system. She defines it. If you go to Europe, various countries in Europe, you have a social democracy or a social contract. Those are capitalistic societies. All I'm saying is there are other forms of capitalism that are gentler. I, I, uh, I don't disagree with that context. Um, I will say I spent some time with some wealthy people overseas recently and and uh, they just don't want anyone to know who they are. They're just like, ah, we, don't, we just don't want to be public at all. Because once once people know that you're wealthy in these regions, they're just like, they assume you did something wrong. They just assume that you had this ill-gotten gains and you're you're a terrible person. And you, you did all this stuff like that. But, but really, it's not, none of that's true, but it would be very hard, very difficult to explain why. And so it's like, oh, we just rather not have to go down explaining like and, all this judgment. And we have the other, we have the opposite. You're a superhero. The more money you make, you're a celebrity. And we and we kowtow to you. I think it's definitely a middle of the road there. I mean, obviously certain people they work their ass off to get there. They really, really put the hard work to do it. And I'm not know, talking about the I amount know. of labor. Yeah, no, no, no. But yeah, but. Okay, there's inherited wealth, and then there's sure. well, your, then there's the entrepreneurial wealth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But there's a nouveau anyway, riche, nouveau, nouveau riche. riche. <laughs> That's all of America. But okay, back to me. Yes, <laughs> it's all about you. Come on, tonight your, it is. This is your show. Hello, <laughs> our, our snake. <laughs> Get back on track. <laughs> it was a nice tangent, though. Yeah, um, it was. So you, you said you started three different companies. Um, so, but those are also in different regions as well. Countries. Different, yeah, that's what I mean. Continents. Uh, yeah, con- uh, were they three different continents? America, right? Japan, and Europe. Oh, yeah. Well, Europe, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Unless you're in Iceland standing on the verge and the <laughs> vortex of North America and Europe. Well, I was kind of curious what, what it's like uh, setting up companies in those different locations like what's what's the culture like in those different places okay let's talk about japan sure so i set up a company when i was 21 
and it was a talent and booking agency. And I brought to Japan rock and mostly punk rock musicians from the UK. I had a partner who was Japanese and he was really handling the finances. And I went out and did distribution, sales, marketing, licensing agreements. What was it like? I was a person, I guess I still am, I learn on the fly. I didn't finish college. I went to Columbia University, didn't finish because I was already a journalist. And from there, I saw these opportunities and I guess that's just a visionary mind. You see something, you don't report it. You know, see something, do something. You see the possibilities, you see the opportunity, which I did. And then I just made it happen. What's, what was it like? Being a 21 year old in Japan afforded me a great deal of honor. I had respect from my colleagues who were twice my age, all male, because either A, they didn't know what to do with me. They would take me to geisha houses. I'm like, <laughs> okay, but please geishas, don't touch my legs. <laughs> like the food is great. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I didn't know what to do except like, okay, thank you. This is great. A little is lost in translation there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, then on the other hand, I had an enthusiasm and a, I guess, a purity and a Western, of course, I was from the West, right? I'm from America. An enthusiasm of positivity and optimism that they didn't have. So it was a special position to be in. All doors were open to me. And I took advantage of it. I never felt so out of place. What was, the, what was sort of the... Since you've had context in multiple regions, what was the regulatory regime there? Was it easy to work in Japan? No, 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 no. It was difficult. No, difficult. I had, I had to have someone sponsor me legally to be there, mm -hmm. and it was the person that first offered me a job for one year, and then he sponsored me for the remaining period of time that I was there. Mm -hmm. And. In terms of like actually starting a business, is it, uh, is it also a pain? No, it was it was similar to Europe, as far as I can recall. Mm -hmm. You had to invest, I think, forty thousand yen. I, I can look it up. I don't remember no, the exact number, but you needed to have a board of directors of three people, a secretary, a president, and a vice president. And you needed to invest the money and put that in the bank account and sign a share agreement. It was like an LLC at the time. But with maybe way more people involved. Because LLC, you can, just, you can just do the one. Yeah, in the United States. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Right. It's similar in Europe, too. You can't just do one. You need a board. You need an oversight. Interesting. And... Um, so if you were to start a company now, is there a place you'd prefer having done it in multiple places? Uh, probably a place where the taxes were best, mm -hmm. and that would be the Netherlands. 
Okay. That's a great place for a European headquarters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just there fairly recently. Uh, yeah, it was Amsterdam. That's right. Yes. I lived there for 13 years. It's a beautiful uh, city. It's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. It's a tiny little dollhouse. I, I really thought it would be five times as bigger. Um, Why? I don't know. It just, it just seems like a large European city, but it wasn't. It was a small no, European city. It's a, <laughs> It's all kind well, of, second tier European city. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. It's not London or you, Paris. You hear about it, and you know, I, I think I had a very different interpretation of what it would be like. But we're like, oh, we're across the city already. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> hey, I'm we done just, in 30 minutes. We just got here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's a beautiful city, though. Um, I visited some pretty amazing places while I was there. Uh, they really interesting architecture. Yeah. Um, so. Um, we should probably talk a little bit more about your book. Um, you want to give us sort of the highlights, um, some, some of the like, bigger takeaways that you think people might get out of it? Yeah. Um, basically, it's a book of inspiration and courage and outrageousness. I, there are no bars held in this book because I was a wild child. And I grew up in the 70s in New York City with parents that were not only dysfunctional, that's a word, okay, what does it mean? I was abused in, on several levels and really had to get away from what was so extremely abnormal that I devoted myself into poetry and into writing and into listening to music. And I had an album collection of 2,000 albums. And I was a kind of... Thousand. thousand. I was a kind of. How did you live in New York? You just made a whole oh. extra apartment just for your records. <laughs> I had my room. I had my room, and I, I just dove into the music. I became a walking Wikipedia. I knew where every band member, what bands they were in, what instruments they played, what their songs were, where they. I just knew everything about. All the musicians. How did you do your research back then? Listening. Yeah, but how did you know about the bands themselves? Or did you go to the or radio or music or magazines. Uh -huh. okay. That was your source. Mm -hmm. And um, pirate ships. Europe had pirate ships too. Mm -hmm. And I hitchhiked from Long Island into New York City. Grew up in the city, then we moved to Long Island. Figure like from Austin to Georgetown. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Basically, I told my mother at 14, you're no longer in charge of me. I'm in charge of me. So just lay off and you'll never tell me what to do because I will never listen to you. And that's what happened. And so I started living my life as a little miniature adult. Did you I, get your own place too? At 17. Wow. That's, I was, that's early. Yeah. I was already published. I was working jobs. I was going to school at night. Extremely driven, A-type personality, and I had a strategy. Okay, well, I'm published in these magazines, but I'm a nobody. It's freelance. How long could this go on? I need a strategy. So I decided to become the New York correspondent for Canadian and British rock magazines, both trade and consumer. So now I had my name on the masthead, and I got in everywhere. Swag, concert tickets, blah, blah, blah. and I was invited to go to Japan 
from Kiss's management, PR management group. And why? I asked them why. They said, because we're going to Canada after Japan. <laughs> like, hey, okay, ka-ching. And that changed my life forever. And I thank Kiss for that. You, you could kiss him. I could kiss him. <laughs> so the takeaway from my book, I know I just told you the whole story. It's a couple of things. Surviving abuse. Surviving dysfunction. Finding yourself. Becoming your own person. Believing that you have something you can offer the world. What do you want people to get out of it? I want them to get that they can do anything they set their mind to. I want them to get that taking risk is safe. I heard something the other day, sort of like, Taking risk, one of two things happens. You either get what you want, and so you win, or you now are wise. Either way, you just won. Like, it's it's positive. There is no such thing as failure. I'm not into this, oh, success is this and failure is that. There is no such thing. There's simply experience. Experience it. Oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm 25 years old. I want to save her house. Why? Who told you that? Explore the world. Explore yourself. And when you explore yourself, you'll start to live in harmony, I think, with nature. Your nature, your own human nature, and nature. I loved traveling. I had gone to Europe when I was 16 on a teen tour because my stepmother gave me that as a present. It changed my life. Where's your, where's your favorite place you've been? I'm curious. Like in my whole life? Yeah. There's so many, but let me name a few. Japan, definitely. Iceland. India. China. There's more. There's so many places I want to go to on my bucket list. Before I die. There's a book that someone gave me once. A hundred places to go before you die. Or a thousand places. I need to go to as many places as possible. Mm. And when you're younger, you take risks. But I see young people now, Gen Z, they don't take any risk. It's shocking. It's scary to me. At least American Gen Zs, not the same in Europe. They, they've been codified and, and, and coddled and helicoptered by their parents to the point where they are mummified. Yeah, as soon, as soon as I saw rubber on the playgrounds, like rubber, rubber, I know why. I mean, they should be things should be sharp and dangerous everywhere. I played, I played softball and baseball. I was on a boys' baseball team. I was a tomboy. I played baseball on concrete. Our school yeah. in New York City, it was concrete. I got hit in the, I got hit in the lip one day by a baseball. It was like, oh my god. So tremendously, um, what is it called? When it swells? Beyond swelling. It was huge. It was <laughs> like took up the size of my face. So what? You get over it. Yeah. You just, so that's what I want people to get. Take a risk. And I don't care what age you are. If you have something in you that you've been 
just yearning to do in your life, do it. Don't let the negativity and the the talk, you know, talk you out of it. Okay, well, how do people find your book and find you? Okay, so they find my book on Amazon or on my website. And the title of the book is Under My Skin, Drama, Trauma, and Rock and Roll. <laughs> I like it. And it's under my name, Elise Crensell. And people find me on my website, which is EliseCrensell.com. Are you on any of the socials as well? I'm on TikTok. Because I'm cool. <laughs> I'm on YouTube under EK Editorial. Editorial. Got it. TikTok is Elise Crensell. Instagram, Elise Crensell. Facebook is EK Editorial. LinkedIn is Elise Crensell. Love it. Threads is Elise Crensell. You still on that? I'm. I, I do I hardly could, anything on it. I couldn't, uh, couldn't get it going. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the five people on there. Anyway, Elise, this has been great. Um, please let me know when your next book is out. I'd love to hear all about that as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.